Hello, thank you for listening to this sermon from our Revive service. We hope it helps you learn more about God and allow you to grow closer to Him and in your faith. So today, um, today we start a new series, a two-week series that I probably should have made a four-week series. Um, it's a two-week series called Joyful Sexuality. And uh, just to be honest, uh, where, I, where this kind of came from, um, when Lene was home over Christmas break, I, I just uh, loved having them home and just catching up. And I said, Lene, uh, I said, is there anything new, something that just kind of has struck you when you, now that you've been in college and, you know, you're going through your classes and, and as you're sitting in chapel, is there anything that you feel like maybe mom and dad, like we just missed or we didn't, we didn't talk about, um, you know, maybe it was in youth group or church or... Is there just any area that you think that we just, mainly me, because I'm her dad and her pastor, but I said, is there anything that we missed? And she's like, no, not really. And she thought about it and we were talking and, and she's like, only, the only thing I would say is I really enjoyed the series that I sent you. And, uh, and she sent me a three day series that she wanted me to listen to back in beginning of November um, and uh, Dave Whiting is a pastor out in Washington State, and he had come, and he had shared uh, with uh, uh, Clark Summit University, their chapel, about uh, what the Bible has to say about sexuality and, uh, and also um, uh, just living, living a pure life. And so she said, she said Dad, I, I always knew that the Bible said like homosexuality was wrong, but I never really, I never really knew where it was. And so that led me to begin to pray and to really think about, um, this is, this is, and this is something that I love talking about. In fact, I'll say it and you'll hear me say it, especially next week, but sex is a great thing inside of the bounds of marriage. It is a wonderful gift from God. And we shouldn't be ashamed to talk about it in that setting, all right? And I think sometimes we're fearful or we've been scared to talk about it. And I think sometimes we're scared and fearful even to talk about other things um, that have to deal with the perversion of what God has given us in the gift of sex and the gift of marriage and the relationship. Starting off here this morning, I, I just want to be real. There is a lot of different thoughts, there's polarizing thoughts about where, where we are, not only in our country, but around the globe today when it comes to sexuality. And I understand that. And I know that I, I, I know it because my kids, we, we had Lene, she graduated through Firestone and Marissa's been through there. We've been, we've had our kids in public school. Our youngest two now are in uh, Chapel Hill Christian or not Chapel Hill, Lake Center Christian. Lisa teaches at Chapel Hill Christian. Um, and so we've been in the world. We know that being amongst people, there's a lot of different thoughts and lots of different opinions, even amongst Christian people, even in the church. And this is where it's become challenging. This is where it's become hard because even in, in quote, the church, um, there are polarizing thoughts. And unfortunately, um, uh, we've, it stems from what I, what I think is one area. 
And this is, this is something, and I don't mean to make simple what's something that maybe isn't as simple as what it is, but I really do think it boils down to this. I think it boils down to how we view Scripture and how we view Scripture and the authority of Scripture. Do you believe that the Scripture is the Word of God, full and complete, and that it has the final say? Because how we look at Scripture, how we interpret it, what we see is the truth, and, and that will dictate then how we live it out. If we view the Bible as not really being authoritative, or it's a great book, but it doesn't mean that they had it all right, I mean, you can find, you can Google and you can find anything on Google that will back you up in your thinking today. It's kind of bad. It's good in one sense. It's bad in another sense. You can, you can Google something and, and ask Google for a thought that would be a biblical thought that they're going to take and they're going to twist and somebody has made it to say something that the Bible doesn't even really mean. So how we view this, and I debated on, how, okay, we're talking about joyful sexuality. Why are we talking about the Bible? Because we've got to start here. Because if I, if I don't start here, everything that I, else I say and that I share um, can be misconstrued or misunderstood. How you view the Bible, how you look at it, how you read it, how you study it will dictate what authority you live your life by. So I could tell you what the Bible says, but if you don't believe that the Bible is real and that it's authoritative, then it doesn't matter. And we're going to look at a lot of passages today. I got a lot to cover with you. All right. And, and, and yet we've got to, I've got to start here with you because I think it's critical and it's important that, that you know, and some of you may have had this teaching, some of you may already understand. But when we study the Bible, how we interpret it is crucial in how we live it out. So there's two different terms, uh, exegesis and hermeneutics, okay? Exegesis is the act of studying. And so uh, if I'm going to um, open up my Bible, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exegese a passage, I'm going to study it, all right? Some of you are like, I don't care. Don't tell me about this. Just humor me, all right? There's a few points today that you're just going to have to humor me, and if you just smile at me, that, that'll make me feel better, okay? Hermeneutics. There's, uh, there's, this, there's really kind of four different hermeneutical methods, and hermeneutics is the science of interpreting the Bible or interpreting other works of art, um, uh, it could be a poem, could be other literature, um, and it's the methods of interpreting. So these four, there's four main ones, is the literal, a moral, allegorical, and then like a mystical, all right? And so when, when we come, when people come to the Bible and they begin to read it, they, they probably will choose one or multiple ways of how they view it. For example, some people will read the book of Jonah, and they'll see it as, oh, this is a great story. Some will view it and say, oh, that's mythical. That's, that's a, that's, there's, there's a story there, but there must be some, something behind it that God wanted us to learn. But it may not be necessarily true. 
How could God close the lion's mouths and where Daniel wouldn't be eaten? So they come at the text and they view it in, in, in a different lens. We, me, most Protestants will view the Bible. And when I'm coming and sharing the Bible with you this morning, I share it from a literal standpoint. Okay. That's my hermit, herm, hermeneutical method. Okay. Of looking at it at a literal way. And when I come to it, understanding that there are different genres of text as we read through it. Okay. When you read through the Song of Solomon, all right, if you take all of that literally, I've got some concerns. But understanding that we're literally, we're viewing it as a piece of, of some of its poetry, all right, and understanding what the writer's intent was. And so that's a literal standpoint as we look at the text that we says that we believe that, that God literally, that he gave it to us and that we can view it literally as we read it, we can understand it and that we can live it out. This isn't just some story or group of stories that God, God gave us and some of it might be true and some of it isn't true. This, I believe, is the full word of God. It is holy and inerrant. There is nothing of error in this. This is truth. And I'm not going to get into the whole debate of how you prove that through the generations and through the time. That's why the Dead Sea Scrolls are so critical and so important as we read the scriptures and as we digest and as we study them. Um, uh, the hermeneutical approach of, being, of looking at it literally helps to shape how we live our lives. I'm not smart enough to go through all of that. I give all of that to you to help maybe just wetten your appetite so that you would know how do you study the Bible? How do you look at the text? When you open up the Bible and you start reading it, how do you understand it? And maybe some of you say, I don't understand it. Well, that's why we're here. That's why I'm here. That's why we have teachers. That's why we have helpers to help you understand and to dig in the word of God. And so if that's you, we want to help you. I remember opening my Bible as a kid, never understanding, like saying, these are big words. And there's still a lot of big words that I still can't pronounce, but that's okay. We're digging in and we start to understand what is the truth and how do we live it out? So the goal of whatever method that we come to the text with, and this is my goal for you today, is that we will understand better and that we will obey the Holy Scriptures. That we will understand better what the text has to tell us, what God has to tell us. And that not only will we understand it, but that we will obey it. So that's our goal today. Are you ready to dig in? This is going to be awesome. I hope. I pray. So, where do we start? Well, we start with this, and it goes on to what I was just saying. And I don't want you to just take my word for it, but I want you to see. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 16... It says this, right? 
It says all scripture. Did you notice that? What's the first word? Okay. So as Paul's writing that, all right, he's writing about not only the Old Testament, but there's some other letters that are probably already have already started to circulate, but especially the Old Testament. All right, we're going to look at the Old Testament here in a little bit. And some people view the Old Testament as outdated or only for Israel, only for the nation there. No, no, no. Notice how Paul set the tone as Timothy is going out and training leaders for the church. What does he say? All scripture is what? It is breathed out by God, meaning it is from God. All right, it's from him. It is his word. It is from God, breathed out, profitable, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So it is profitable. All scripture is profitable, right? Do you believe that? Even when you get into the book of Numbers. Man, that's rough, all right? No matter what text we get into, we can always come back and we can, can hold on to this truth. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. It's good for us. As we look at the, the law, and we're going to look at the law here in a little bit, there's different thoughts about the Old Testament and about the law. And I just want to help you understand where, where I'm coming from, okay, and how I view the law, the law of the Old Testament. The law would be classified roughly as the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, okay? And so when you look at the law, how do you describe the law and its meaning for us today? Well, back in 1646, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith um, classified the law into three different categories. They classified them into the moral, the moral law, the civil law, okay, or judicial law, and then the ceremonial law. And so these three, every law would fit into one of these three. There's a lot of debate about that, all right? And, and I'm not here to, to tell you what you need to believe. All I'm here is passing on information, okay? Helping you to hopefully have more of an appetite and to dig in more, all right? The Jewish people, I do believe this. I do believe that the Jewish people, as they were ingrained in their relationship with God, how they lived... And, and what they believed was in every part of their life, okay? And so for them to try to dissect this would have been difficult, all right? For us, it's a little bit easier. We're not Jewish. Most of us, as I look around here, we're Gentiles, okay? And so we come at the text looking at it a little bit different. But as we look at the law, we, could, we can, I think, there are ways to classify and looking at it, the moral all right, there are some laws that God gave to Israel that are moral of, of keeping like the Ten Commandments. Hey, here's some laws that we want, that God said, I want you to do because this is what's right. All right, there are some that were civil or judicial. Remember, Israel was its own nation. It was, it was its own country, distinct, set apart from all the other nations. And who was their king? God was. God was their king, right? Until they clamored and wanted an earthly king. God was their king. And so God set up judicial laws that would help them as they would go and live their lives. How, how do you live in a town? And how do you care for people? And how things are supposed to be laid out? And so you have these civil or judicial laws. 
we have laws in our towns, in our cities, right? So Israel had that, and we see that in the scriptures. The third part of the law is the ceremonial part, where again, God as Israel, distinct nation from all the other nations, desired for them to worship him. And he gave them instructions like the Sabbath, like the Passover, like, like setting aside the redemption of the firstborn. There were certain ceremonial laws that Israel was, was instructed to do. We just read in Hebrews chapter 10, and that was purposeful, not just for communion, but for us to also see part of the ceremonial laws was bringing sacrifice. Do we still, still sacrifice? I've not seen one of you in my 20 some years of being here, bring a sheep or a goat or a pigeon. None of you have brought something here to lay at the front of the altar to sacrifice. All right. Thank you. You don't need to do that. All right. Jesus died once and for all. He, he fulfilled that, that ceremonial law, uh, the laws that were part of that ceremony leading to Christ. Christ fulfilled that so that there is no longer needed to be sacrifices. He died once and for all. That sacrifice is sufficient. So we see that all scripture, including the law, is profitable. And when we look, let's look at Romans 10. When we, when we see, what, when we get to the New Testament, what's, what's the law? And, and we'll talk about this a little bit in, in a little bit more. But Romans chapter 10 and verse 4 says this. And all drank the spiritual drink, and they drank from the spiritual rock. I'm sorry, that's 1 Corinthians. That's, I'm like, that doesn't make sense. That's good. Good passage. Romans chapter 10, verse 4, it says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So what does that text tell us? If we're pursuing righteousness, ultimately what Paul is saying, you cannot achieve the, any righteousness of God apart from Christ. Christ is the end of the law, meaning this, the Mosaic law had reached its goal in Jesus Christ. The law looked forward and it anticipated Jesus' coming. And so Paul is writing here for us that Christ is the end of the law. Does that mean that the law isn't good for us? We're going to look in a minute, and I want to show you in the text. I don't want you to take it, my word for it. I want you to read the Bible because this is our authority, right? Not what Pastor Aaron says, but what God says. And hopefully they line up, all right? But you have to do your work, all right? Now, now we're going to dig into the juicy stuff. Here we go. I will tell you that this is pretty descriptive, all right? The Old Testament, I think, is R-rated. All right. And if you don't think that you haven't read through it, I think it is when you think about the different killings and bashings and head chopping off and all those other things that are going on, but also some of the texts that we're going to see here today. I want to show you from scripture. I want to start first with this idea of the Bible never talks about homosexuality being wrong or being sinful. All right. And I want to walk through a couple texts in the Old Testament but then I also want to walk through a couple texts in the New Testament. 
All right. And it isn't me and what I have to say. I want you to view it and I want you to see what God's word has to say. But also understanding how we view the law. While the law, while Christ brings the righteousness that we need, we can't earn righteousness from keeping the law. The, the law could never do that. Christ fulfilled that. All right. But understanding that there. The, there was a place for the law in certain times and certain periods, but that doesn't mean that the law isn't good for us. And so we're going to dig in. So take your Bibles. I want you to follow along with me, please. Take your Bibles and follow along. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19. So we're going to look at a couple passages uh, about homosexuality, and then we're going to dig into just a couple other sexual sins, because sometimes we get on our hobby horses as, uh, as Protestants and we yell at all the homosexuals and, uh, and, and, and yet we fail to see that there are, yes, there are other sexual sins as well. But Genesis chapter 19 and, uh, verses one through 11, and you can follow along on the screen, but I encourage you, again, as we go through these big texts, I encourage you to follow along with me in your own Bible. Genesis 19, verses 1 through 11. It says, The two angels, then the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, Please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly so that they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men in the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all of the people to the last man surrounded the house. Let me just pause there real quick. Notice what the text says. Do we believe that the Bible is true and that what it says is true? What is the author writing or what is the writer telling us? Verse 4, let's look at it again. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, meaning all the men of the town are there. Okay? Verse 5, and they called to Lot. Where are the men who came with you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. This word know means to have relation with them, sexual relations. Lot went to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Let me just pause there just for one moment. I, I have two girls and I cannot begin to imagine saying this and doing this. I don't understand it. All right. Just because I don't understand a text, just because I don't understand how somebody could be this way, doesn't make it not true. Okay. So I say that as a disclaimer, I have no idea what Lot was thinking. Other than I think he was really scared and I think he knew that these two men were angels. The beginning of the chapter tells us there was something different about these two men. They were angels. 
here on this earth, visiting. They had visited Abraham, Abram, and now they were visiting Lot. All right? Let's keep going. Um, verse 9. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal well, worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew, drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. So what we see here first is that, that in this first text, the men of this town saw these two angels, these two other men that had come into Lot's house, and they lusted and they desired to have relations with them. Ultimately, by force, they wanted to have a homosexual encounter with them. If this is our only text that dispels homosexuality, we're in big trouble. So all that to say is don't let this text be your only text that disproves or that proves that God hates homosexuality. Okay? Let's be wise. Is homosexuality wrong? We see that this is a wrong encounter. All right? There are some who believe that homosexuality is wrong only when uh, it is forced upon somebody else. So they would use this text and say, oh, see, these men, they wanted to ultimately to rape these other men. And that's why it was wrong. The act of homosexuality isn't wrong, just the fact that they were forcing themselves. While you may try to apply that to this text, again, there are some other texts that we want to look at. So let's jump to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 19. Judges chapter 19. So Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Judges chapter 19. Judges 19, and we want to look at verses 16 through 30. Judges 19, verses 16 through 30. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And as he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city, and the old man said, Where are you going? And where did you come from? And he said to them, we are passing, he said to him, we are, we are passing from Bethlehem and Judea to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem and Judah, and I'm going, I'm going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed. And they washed their feet and ate and drank. And as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, 
beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. Again, a term that means to have sexual intercourse with. All right? Adam knew Eve. I mean, he knew her. All right? These men, as they've said, we want to know him. Verse 23. And the man, the master of the house, went out and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let them bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. Can I just pause again? It's crazy, right? Some people look at this and they're like, this is too crazy, right? I can't understand it. How could God allow this? How could God do this? Listen, Solomon says there is nothing new under the sun, meaning this, this stuff has happened and will continue to happen because of sin. Since Adam and Eve sinned, sin has been on this earth. Sin is vile. It's deceptive, and it it's manifests itself in many different ways. Was this stuff happening before? Probably. Because the earth was so wicked that God had to wipe it all out except for Noah and his family. Do you remember that story? People say, well, how could God do that? Kill all those innocent babies and all those people. No, the people were wicked. Let's keep going. I'm trying to look and see what verse I'm on. Verse 25. The men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as the morning appeared, the woman, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. Her master rose up in the morning, and when he had opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. When he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all that saw it said, such a thing has never happened or has been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Whew. They're in this city. The city is made up of Benjaminites. Benjaminites are men of God. They're one of the 12 tribes. These are the people who are supposed to be set apart, who are distinct followers of the Lord God Almighty. This traveler coming doesn't find anyone in this town who will help him in his endeavors, who will welcome him in, in fact, he finds somebody from his town who welcomes him and pleads with him that he 
does not stay in the town square. That's why we don't have town squares. We have town circles now. Sorry. That's got to lighten the mood. In the midst of this, what do we see? How is it described that these men and what they desired, the master of the house went out to them and said in verse 23, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Ultimately, as this man goes back to his own house and he spreads the word via his concubine's body parts, the rest of the tribes of Israel, as you continue to keep reading, the rest of the tribes of Israel bring judgment and wrath upon this town and upon the Benjaminites. So much so that they promise that they will not give their daughters to marry the Benjaminites. So they have to come up with an alternate plan so that God wouldn't just wipe out this one tribe because God had promised 12 tribes. They come up with a plan, by the way. Read the Bible. You'll see what happens. It shows and it depicts for us again how, how warped this thinking of sexuality had become. Genesis now, Genesis 34, if you flip back now, Genesis 34. Now we're going to look at two different passages, then we're going to jump to Leviticus. I know I'm running out of time. I'll try to hurry. Genesis 34, 1 through 7. This, we see now another horrible way of sexuality. Okay, Genesis 34, verses 1 through 7. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hiphite, the prince of the land, saw her and seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And her soul was, his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, and his sons were with the livestock in the fields, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamar, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Verse 7, the sons of Jacob had come into the field as soon as they heard it, and the men were indignant and, be, and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. All right, what we see here is, again, context tells us, uh, one, it's bad that he, that, he, that he ultimately, he raped her, okay? That's the sin. It, it, it was disrespectful. It says that he, he humiliated her. But there's another aspect of this. And, and again, as, as the Jewish nation, Israel, they were supposed to be distinct and set apart. They were not supposed to be intermarrying with other, other people. And that is exactly what was taking place here, where some, the, a Hivite, outside of the 12 tribes, a Hivite had, had taken um, um, Jacob's daughter, um, and, and here he had taken her for his own. And we see that his brother, her brothers, 
in that last verse that, that when they came in and they heard of it, they were so angry uh, because it was an outrageous thing to be done in Israel. I think it, it, it speaks of two things. Uh, not only was the fact that he took her and raped her, but also the fact that the context tells us that, that this pagan nation would do that with one of God's children. And so ultimately what we see is context tells us these, these, uh, this man, man and his dad and all of the people there uh, get, get their judgment. All right. It's a cool story. You have to read it another time, the rest of it. What we see is it's despicable. All right. Second uh, Samuel 13. Second Samuel chapter 13. Now, this time, we're not having an Israelite and an outsider, a Hivite. Now we have two parties of, who are part of Israel, all right? David, David and his family, all right? Um, we won't talk about David and Bathsheba today, but that set, that set the tone for what we read here. Okay, David and Bathsheba and their willingness to uh, David engorging in, in, in his sin um, has led to his household and, and the destruction of his household. And we get to see part of that uh, manifest itself here in 2 Samuel 13 verses 1 through 20. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shema, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, who are you so haggard? Why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I might see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I might eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And when she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had, she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he, he would not listen to her. 
And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. So Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong and for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with the sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king's dress. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went out, crying aloud as she went. And as her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. So here we see Amnon and Tamar, brother, sister. He violated her and laid with her, and then he threw her away. Ultimately, Absalom kills him later, all right, because David didn't do what he needed to do in his judgment. Don't you feel better about your world today? So let's flip now to the book of Leviticus, all right, Leviticus 13. Leviticus 18, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Leviticus chapter 18. Um, Leviticus 18, and I want to read uh, from the New Living Translation um, this morning, and it's actually up on the screen that way too. Um, not that there's anything wrong with the English Standard Version. The English Standard Version just makes it a little bit more difficult to follow along. And because it's such a larger passage, um, we're going to read um, this whole chapter, chapter 18. I really felt like the New Living Translation helped be able to distinguish the different relationships. Okay, so our context here, God is giving to the nation of Israel through Moses um, what their, what the purity laws and what unhealthy and unlawful sexual uh, relations look like. They're just going to spell it out. And he's going to tell them, these are the things that you must not participate in. And so when you look at uh, the English Standard Version, it's kind of like, okay, who is that and how is that related? The New Living Translation helps with that. You follow along with your text. Let's read. Leviticus 18 it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Give the following instruction to the people of Israel. I am the Lord your God. So do not act like the people in Egypt where you used to live or like the people in Canaan where I'm taking you. You must not imitate their way of life. You must obey all my regulations and be careful to obey my decrees. For I am the Lord your God. If you obey my decrees and my regulations, you will find life through them. I am the Lord. Verse 6. You must never have sexual relations with a close relative, for I am the Lord. Do not violate your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. You must not have sexual relations with her. Verse 8. Do not have sexual relations with any of your father's wives. 
for this would violate your father. Verse 9, do not have sexual relations with your sister or half-sister, whether she is your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether she was born into your household or someone else's. Verse 10, do not have sexual relations with your granddaughter, whether she is your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, for this would violate yourself. Verse 11, do not have sexual relations with your stepsister, the daughter of any of your father's wives, for she is your sister. Do not have sexual relations with your father's sister, for she is your father's close relative. Do not have sexual relations with your mother's sister, for she is your mother's close relative. Do not violate your uncle, your father's brother, by having sexual relations with his wife, for she is your aunt. Do not have sexual relations with your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife, so you must not have sexual relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife, for this would violate your brother. Do not have sexual relations with both a woman and her daughter. And do not take her granddaughter, whether her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter, and have sexual relations with her. They are close relatives, and this would be a wicked act. While your wife is living, do not marry her sister and have sexual relations with her, for they would be rivals. Let me pause there for a second. We already know that. All right. If you read earlier in the text, the Bible, Genesis gives us an example of that. All right. Leah and Rachel, what happens? They're rivals. Isn't it cool how God's law gives life? He said earlier in this. And so this isn't just a bunch of rules that you shouldn't do because God tells you to do and it's going to make your life miserable. No, actually, this gives you life. This helps you. Continuing, verse 19. Do not have sexual relations with a woman during her period of menstrual impurity. Do not defile yourself by having sexual intercourse with your neighbor's wife. Do not permit any of your children to be offered as a sacrifice to Molech, for you must not bring shame on the name of your God, I am the Lord. Do not practice homosexuality, having sex with another man as with a woman. It is a detestable sin. A man must not defile himself by having sex with an animal, and a woman must not offer herself to a male animal to have intercourse with it. This is a pervasive act. Do not defile yourself in any of these ways, for the people I am driving out before you have defiled themselves in all of these ways. Because the entire land has become defiled. I am punishing the people who live there, and I will cause the land to vomit them out. You must obey all my decrees and regulations. You must not commit any of these detestable sins. This applies both to native-born Israelites and to the foreign, foreigners living among you. All these detestable activities are practiced by the people of the land where I am taking you. And this is how the land has become defiled. So do not defile the land and give it a reason to vomit you out, as it will vomit out the people who live there now. Whoever commits any of these detestable sins will be cut off from the community of Israel. So obey my instructions and do not defile yourself by committing any of these detestable practices that are committed by the people who lived in the land before you. I am the Lord your God. So we see here a, a big list, right, of all kinds of different things that Israel was supposed to um, never be involved in. Um, we see over in Leviticus 20, which we won't take time to read this morning, but if you look at it, Leviticus 20 and starting in verse 10, it's going to list all of these same um, uh, sins, sexual sins, but with them it will give the punishment, 
all right, so that they knew if someone committed these, um, they were to execute the punishment. Ultimately, why? Because of what we see here at the end, that you may not defile yourselves by committing any of these detestable practices. So if we go back and we look at this, um, there's a couple things that I just want to make note of, all right? Um, there's one that kind of seems out of, out of, uh, well, used to be on Sesame Street, they would say, which one of these things is not like the other, okay? And they give you like six squares and you have to pick out the one banana that, because there was cars and all the other ones, you know? There's one thing that I would say just looks a little bit different here. And, and that is um, the one with the menstrual cycle in verse 19. Do not have sexual relations with a woman during her period of menstrual impurity. All right. I, I think this one, again, kind of probably falls more into the ceremonial aspect of things because Israel and their purity and the need of the purity as they approach God. Um, there w there's much to be said about that in the law. And so um, I'm not saying there's one that's more detestable than the other. I'm just saying that this one, if you look at the, the Acts um, in chapter 20, um, that the punishment, the punishment is, is, is not the same here. You don't, you don't die, all right? The, that's not what happens. The other thing that I just want to take mention of is verse 21. It says, do not permit any of your children to be offered as a sacrifice to Molech. For you must not bring shame on the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. The sacrifice of Moloch, if you do go back and do some reading, there's two things. Number one, offering your children to sacrificing to a God. Um, they would kill these children. And it was your, your offering, all right, to be right with the God Moloch. But also in the temple of Moloch would be prostitutes. And so part of that offering was offering yourself and I think at times, and we're going to see some terminology, even some of these children being offered up as prostitutes as well. And so people would go to the temple of, of Molech, offering their children and engaging in sexual uh, favors and sexual delights, ultimately worshiping this false and pagan God. And we see that this is not permitted, okay? Then we get to the homosexuality. Verse 22, do not practice homosexuality, having sex with another man as with a woman. It is detestable sin. And so it makes it very clear here. This is not talking about um, just uh, a, a gang rape as we saw in some of our other texts. All right. This is talking about having relations, a man with a man, just as you would as having it with a woman. All right. Uh, a man must not defile himself by having sex with an animal. And a woman must not offer herself to a male animal to have intercourse with it. This is a pervasive act. Why? Because mankind is different. We see in the text, we are made different. We're made in the image of God, male and female. There's two, and we'll talk more about that next week, uh, about the sexuality part of that. We see here in the text, ultimately, homosexuality is not allowed. All right? Let me pause before we jump to the New Testament real quick. You may have feelings. I may have feelings. We may have our own thoughts and our own opinions about what is right or what should be allowed. Ultimately, what God says has to be what's right. 
Let's jump over 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. Because some people have argued and said, well, that's the Old Testament. That's the law. We don't follow the law. Some people eat shrimp. You know, like, which ones do you follow? Which ones do you not? We can talk about that more in another discussion. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. First Corinthians chapter six, verses nine through 11, it says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And so Paul's going to list some actions of what um, the unrighteous look like. He said, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. And then he keeps going, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God as such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Two things. One, we can be saved from our sin. We all are sinners. Now, my sin might look different than your sin, but sin is sin to God. And so when we look at this, I love the fact that Paul mentions, as were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were made clean, you've been justified, you've been made right. So if you're stuck or you're thinking, I can't get out of this, let me just tell you, there is hope. There is hope. There's hope, and it's found in Jesus. The second thing that we see in this text, because, again, some of the arguments have been homosexuality has to be allowed if it's between two consensual adults who really love each other. And that's not true, because what we see here is actually two different Greek words. Um, in our text here, um, the, the last word in your text, it may be that it says men who practice homosexuality, end of verse 9. So there's a whole list here, right? It has the word nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor, and it keeps listing, nor, well, in the Greek it says nor, it says malakos, nor asinitites. And there's two Greek words, and this phrase comes from those two Greek words. And it helps us to understand the first Greek word is a boy that is kept for sexual, homosexual practices, a, a catamite. I had to look up that word. I didn't know what a catamite was. That's what that Greek word means. It means to be soft or passive. The other Greek word, arsenikites, is, is made up of two Greek terms, meaning man and couch. Or a man who lays, all right? It's a Sodomite. Remember the story of Sodom that we, that we just read? Interesting that they would define this term from that Old Testament text. Uh, it was also, it's also used as somebody who is dominant. So here you have both the passive and the active person involved in homosexuality. Okay? So when you dig into the text, the text tells us... It is not just the, pa just the aggressor that is sinning. No, it's the passive as well. I always say it takes two to do the tango. It, both are guilty, okay? 
And our text tells us that. Our text actually helps us to understand that a little bit better. Romans chapter 1, and this is where we're going to stop for the day. I appreciate your patience, and I know I'm going overboard. Romans chapter 1, and I want to start in verse 18. Again, if you would just take some time this week and do some research about the history of Rome. What was Rome like as Paul was writing this letter? What was happening in Rome? Do some historical study. All right? It will help you in understanding what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying in Romans 1 verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or gave thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling uh, mortal man and the birds and the animals and creeping things. So what he's saying here is, listen, mankind is without an excuse. All of mankind can look and see the hand of the creator God. And as they look and they ponder the work of the creation around them, it causes within their very soul uh, something that tells them and desires to know who this creator is. What Paul is saying here is they push that aside. They desired not to pursue the creator, but instead they started worshiping the creation. Nothing is new under the sun. Again, that's what we see happening today as well. But notice what verse 24, what, what Paul writes. Therefore, God gave them up in their lust of their hearts to impurity. When mankind stops pursuing God and pursues the creation or anything else contrary to God, there are moments and there's times where God says, okay, you want to do that? Go ahead. We see that Paul is writing here that God has given them up in their lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. Because, why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It's about the creator, not the creation. So verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up their natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What we see here in the text, and it's, and let me just keep going. Verse 28, and since they did not see 
fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. For they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is not new. What we are encountering in 2022 is not new to this earth. And so for us to think for just a moment that homosexuality or that the LGBTQ plus is something brand new, it's not new. So how we walk, how we talk, how we navigate is given to us in scripture. That's why you have to come back next week. Okay. Because we want to talk about how do we deal with this? How do we walk with this? How, how not only did God give this like people over to this, but the fact that the people who were supposed to be calling them out, who knew what was right, not only did not call them out, but they gave their approval. We're seeing that today. There's nothing new under the sun. How we walk through and enjoy having joyful sexuality and how we can treat one another and the people in our world is crucial. It's critical. It's critical because it's, it, it, it comes from our relationship with God. Again, we're going to dig into more of that next week. And I'm, I'm really sorry. I, I went over time. I got a bunch more. I told Lisa yesterday we were sitting at the table and, and she was working on her schoolwork and I was working on this. And just I'm like, I don't even know how to, how to bring all this together. I'm like, I need a couple more weeks. I appreciate your patience. Listen, if you don't take anything else out, I hope that you can see the Bible talks about sexuality. It doesn't avoid it. Dig into the word. See what God's word has to say. And if you have questions, don't be afraid to ask people. I would caution you to not Google it, though. Okay? Because you're going to get whatever you want it to say. That's where you'll lean. The truth is this. You and I, we're not really that much different. You say, I, I would never do those things. You may not do those things. But without Jesus, you'd be prone to do something else. Because the fact is, we're all sinners. And for those of us who sit here and who acknowledge Jesus as Lord and as Savior, we've been saved from our sin. We've been sanctified. We've been redeemed. We've been given a gift. So let's live differently. Let's live out the truth. We're going to talk about how we live that out and how we talk about that next week. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this time together.
I pray that you would help us in our study of the word to be able to understand it better. Um, Lord, we need your help. We need your help to understand your word. We need your help to under to know how to better live it out. Um, we need, most of all, to understand what I think, how much you love us and how much that love can motivate us to live what is right, to act what is right, to do what is right, to think what is right. Not according to our standards or the world's standards, but according to what you've told us. So help us to do that. We pray in Jesus' name.